Hey everyone, how's it going? And welcome back to Citywide Blackout, your home for the best creators from around the world. I'm your host, Max Bowen. And well, folks, science fiction and faith. So these are two topics that, as it turns out, work pretty well together. I mean, the movie Contact, right there. Prime example. But my next guest shows us to be even more true with her soon-to-be-released book, Far Away and Forever. It's a collection of five novelettes, all dealing with science fiction and faith. And, and given what I've read, it's an amazing book. Joining me is author, musician, and artist, Nancy Joy Wilkie. Nancy, welcome to the show. It is so cool to have you here. Thank you. Very wonderful to be here. All right. There is a lot to unpack here. Uh, this book is, of course, as I mentioned, a, a collection of five novelettes. The thing I want to ask first is, are these old stories that you decided to collect, or was it more something you wrote with the intention of putting them all together? Well, that's a good question, because actually the very first story, which is called Once Upon a Helix, was in fact written 25 years ago. And uh, But the other four stories were all written between uh, January 2020 and uh, February 2021. Uh, the muses came and just made a mess of my head and wouldn't let me go until I got all those written. And actually, there's a fifth story that was written during that same time period. So, um, But that is different from my first collection of short stories, which were written from all over the place and kind of thrown together. And that's why some of them are sci-fi, some are fantasy, and some aren't either one. Mm. Very good. So, so Once Upon a Helix, uh, which is the story that I'm in the middle of right now, you're this 25 years ago. I'm curious as to what spawned the idea. Well, um, you know, being a retired biochemist, I know just a little bit about uh, DNA and molecular biology and uh, and part of the story was inspired a little bit by contact, Carl Sagan, Andrewian. Um, but essentially, the idea is that, you know, we've been listening for signals from outer space for a long time, and we're not getting anything. And so this is a set in about a, a hundred and so years in the future where people are just getting tired of that. And this one poor guy is the last guy hanging on to this and he is the director of the future SETI and um, at the same time coincidentally there's the other main character uh, a, a woman uh, molecular biologist happens to stumble upon something in our DNA and through a chance meeting um, they realize that they've got the answers to each other's questions and they start pushing that forward and at the same time ironically enough they get a signal from outer space that has encoded in it everything that they wanted to know, and it is not good news, folks. Oh, and I am at the point now where the two of them have just met. And oh, that yeah. just broke my heart, but I still want to read the rest of the story because I want to see where, the, uh, where this one goes. But wow, yeah. I, I definitely got contact vibes reading this. And I thought, yeah, this is a lot like contact. You know, SETI, the Search for Extraterrestrial Life Institute which is, as you mentioned, all about listening to the sky for signals that we right. hope come from intelligent life forms. And right. a lot of what they pick up is just cosmic like radiation, background noise, the static, basically, of the cosmos. And they wait for that, like, you know, the blip, 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 that kind of organized pattern that oh, is yeah. not just junk. It's like, this is someone out there saying, what's up? 
And, and as you probably then read, this was a signal that was directed at us, not just something that was randomly sent out into the cosmos. Um, but I will say that one of my one of my dear friends and neighbors uh, recently called me up to say that they had just finished reading the story and, and complained that it was a little bit too technical for them. <laughs> and it's like, well, how do I make it realistic? And, uh, you know, because it's all about mRNA and how many people walk around knowing exactly what an mRNA molecule looks like anyway. Not, not many people. But... Um, you know, I got to make it uh, uh, believable for all my friends who are biochemists and biologists, et cetera, et cetera, so they can say, ah, yeah, I see where you're going with this. That exactly. makes sense. And, and you really can't. And you really can't break that down too much because scientists have their own lingo. You you have your own jargon, yeah. so you can't you can't like make it too simple. Otherwise, it's not realistic from that other perspective. I think. Right. Yeah. All right. But this is just one of five of five stories, and uh, correct. We have four others, and they cover a wide range of stories. Give us a quick walkthrough as to the rest of the tales. Sure. Uh, the next one is called the Goldfire Project, and the uh, in, in your the one uh, 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 thing I listened to of yours where you were interviewing the other the other guy. Uh, you know how much of this came out of uh, current events, but the answer is none. This, the second story is about an artificial intelligence. And um, and so it was written, what, two, three years ago before all the current hype of AI came about. But I, And I can't really get into that too terribly much without giving away the whole irony of the story. But, you know, when you, if, if our goal is to create artificial intelligence that mimics us and who we are and what we want and where we think we're going to go after we die, some of those very same aspirations. And so that's what the story is kind of about. Um, yeah, it's a, definitely as you go in, in the in a direction you don't expect. Um, so that's story two. Story three is called Half the Sky, and it takes place on uh, Proxima Centauri B, which is, of course, the closest exoplanet to, to us. And it's a planet that um, is 1.2 times the size of Earth. It orbits uh, the star in 11.2 days. And um, it's probably tidally locked, which means one face is always looking at the sun, one face is always looking out. But hey, if that's the only exoplanet we can get to, that's where we go. And so it's written about 2,000 years in the future. And it's a story about a young girl who thinks she's uh, an orphan. And she grows up not really knowing uh, whether her parents are alive. And as it turns out, um, both of her parents are alive, but it was a really nasty breakup. And all the people that lived on the side that was closer to where the sun is became darker. And all the people that were living on the other side where it was very cold, their skin became lighter. She's a hybrid. And she's, at the end of the story, she's trying to reconcile with the fact that she grew up for 18 years thinking that one parent was a dragon and one was angelic and she realizes it's the other way around oh i just gave away the plot 
And the fourth story is called The Wishbringer, my favorite story that I've ever written. And it's uh, a story when, and we're now several thousand years in the future, where mankind has developed the, the means to jump into different dimensions. And we find that there's a place uh, where wishes are grown. And uh, so that's why it's called The Wishbringer. And uh, it's a story that sort of gets into what people wish for. You know, most people, they either wish for uh, love, life, health, or wealth. And um, so it's a story about the, the guy that is the reporter for the New Earth News gets there and realizes that he's going to try this out and see if it works. And he makes a wish that he probably shouldn't have made. And so that's that story. Last story is my attempt at being Dan Brown. And uh, it's called The Last Sunday of Summer. And it uh, takes place even further in the future and on a planet called Solus Two, which was a planet that was mentioned in my first collection of stories. And it's uh, it delves into uh, a new religion that's kind of growing in the outer, outer exoplanets. And it's all based on a fellow that claimed to be the second coming of Christ back on earth. And uh, he wrote what I call the, 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 uh, the second chronicles, uh, I'm sorry, the chronicles of the second coming, which I originally was going to call it the, the third Testament of the Bible, but I thought, nah. So that's, that's about uh, the, the, the young girl named summer, which ironically the story is not about the season summer. It's about the young girl named summer. And um, and about the pressure on her to uh, do something about saving what the uh, guy wrote, the second coming guy wrote, and uh, getting it out to the folks of the new religion. Ooh, kind of oh. like the new Bible. Yeah. Ah, so that's it. That, Sorry, that's no, no. Those are some great stories. I definitely, I definitely <laughs> want to read the wishing story because a planet where you grow wishes, what could possibly go wrong? Oh, absolutely. Everything, everything go, goes wrong, folks. <laughs> absolutely, yeah, everything. And, and 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 as a reporter who is sent to uh, investigate all this. And uh, he thinks, boy, oh, boy, if I'm if I'm going to write this story, this could be the greatest story of all time. If people understand the real deal with wishes. But it quickly turns out where he realizes this is probably not a good idea. And uh, everybody else realizes it's not a good idea. And so they put the kibosh on it and uh, it puts him in a very awkward situation, which I will not go into because I'll spoil the story for mm -hmm. you. And as yes. someone who works in journalism, I feel for this person. I genuinely feel for them. Yeah, so I, I'm with you, buddy. I'm with you. I'm going to check yeah. out your story, and I'm going to probably cry right alongside you. Yeah, he's a reporter. Nice. All right. You know, you've got a wide range of ideas here. Um, where do they come from? You mentioned the muses kind of inspired you uh, just out of thin air. Yeah, you know, I know it's kind of weird to say that, but that that's, you know, this stuff is dropped in my head. And um, until I actually retired and had time to write, uh, my head got pretty full. And so I've spent the last 17 years trying to get everything out of my head and either onto paper or onto a CD. And um, but I mean, you know, there 
all sorts of different ways. I can be out on a walk and and the, the whole story can get dropped in my head and I have to come home and immediately start writing a first draft. You know, you just you just never know where this stuff's going to come from. Um, but I will also say that even though that happens, that some of these stories that I've written are written with the idea of a very small audience in mind, that there might be a specific person or group of people that I think should read what I have to say. And because I write largely with allegory, that I've kind of disguised a lot of stuff and hoping that, you know, people figure out what I'm really saying. Mm. Yeah. Have people been able to figure things out? Have they been able to kind of, you know, slice open the stories and figure out what's what's really happening here? Well, and this one, because it's not actually for sale yet, uh, goes on sale on July 18th. But uh, in the first the first collection of stories, there's a there's a, a story in there called Of the Green and Of the Gold. And I was pretty shocked to read some of the reviews I was getting online because people were figuring out what I was really talking about. And um, so they're either incredibly intelligent or I didn't do a very good job of disguising what I was really trying to say. So I don't know, maybe it's some of both, but um, yeah. And, and in this, this, this collection, yeah, there's a story or two where I'm writing an allegory and trying to send a message to some folks. Yeah, sure. Mm. Hey, there are there are some sharp readers out there. There's people out there who are going to figure things out, who are going to figure out who who uh, the killer is, and then the ones who are always going to pick up the mistakes because there's always that person out there. Oh boy, yeah. Well, good news is I had a brutal editor. God bless her. She was awesome. And you know, when I send my my first draft to her and I get an 11 page single spaced dissertation, on everything that's she wanted me to deal with. And then I deal with it and send it back to her and I still get more comments. But, you know, that's that's what makes it uh, that's what makes it good. And uh, I'm very, very fortunate to have her. And my beta readers too. Yeah, um, yeah. I have to tell you, I had six beta readers on this one, and one of whom is uh, the, the the woman that's the the minister of, uh, at the church I go to, and she absolutely had issues with the last story, the last Sunday of summer. I'm not surprised because I'm definitely going against uh, standard doctrine. I think and. Um, and she said to me, do you know that you're a universalist? Well, I didn't know what a universalist was, but apparently that's it's it's a religion based more on uh, science than on theology, hmm. as far as I can tell. Maybe I'm exaggerating, but hmm. um, did that uh, revelation challenge you when she said, do you know that you're a universalist? No, because I think that um, uh, now that I've gone and read about it, I think that that's probably closer to to what I am uh and the premise that's that's mentioned in the story is the reason that there was a second coming is because uh this fellow that claimed to be the second incarnation of Jesus Christ said you know when I came to earth the first time I was trying to deliver a message to a population that was largely uneducated 
and poor. And I, I dumbed everything down. But here we are in the future, and most people are very highly educated. Science has advanced to a point where we have a pretty good idea on how the universe works. And now I can deliver to you the real deal. And um, so that's that's what that's about, is that this, there's this conflict between this new faith and the, uh, the Catholic Church that's back on old earth. Uh, and they don't like this one darn bit. And um, so there's this tension between the old faith and the new faith. I like that. I, li- I like that. I also like that you were able to kind of challenge your minister, too. That They were like, whoa, this is a lot. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, and she's a she's a one smart cookie. So, yeah, she oh, didn't yeah. let me get away with anything, but that's OK. <laughs> I mean, the story essentially it was stayed the way it was. I didn't change anything. Sure. Um, but 11 pages of notes, that's a lot to receive. You think? Single oh, space. Single space, too. Single that's space. Wow. But you know what? That's the mark of a great editor. Because no book that is really good does not have an editor or a beta reader group or something, some, some kind of net Absolutely. to catch things that have to change. It's, it's a fact of life. Absolutely. I think anyone Absolutely. who thinks, I don't need an editor, stop right there. You're wrong. The end. Even yep. St- Stephen King has an editor. I'm sure of it. Clearly, this is a sticky point for me. (laughs) No, you got to have one. And Mm -hmm. uh, I will will tell you that um, she's a high school classmate of mine. Oh, nice. I didn't really know her all that well in high school. And it was at our 40-year high school reunion um, where we started talking about this. And it turned out that she was an editor at Cold Spring Harbor, which I don't know if you know Cold Spring Harbor, but that's, yeah, it's a, a community of uh, scientists up in New York someplace, I guess. And uh, so she was very adept at reviewing um, uh, future publications by scientists about all kinds of stuff. And um, so I thought, well, this was this was perfect. Um, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Um, now you mentioned, of course, your editor and your beta readers, and they are me- and they are thanked in your dedication. But the third thing is you thank your father for a place in Bethany Beach, Delaware, which you described as a great place to write. What is this place? I gotta know more. Well, it's uh, it's uh, it's basically a uh, I call it a pregnant townhouse uh, in a community of uh, about a hundred and I think there's hundred and thirty two units and in a little community that's about a ten minute walk from the beach and um, you know it's just a it's a really chill place um, and it's nice because it was essentially a gift uh, by my dad. Um, and unfortunately, my dad went to see Jesus about 17 years ago. So, you know, uh, I've pretty much, I don't know, I hate to say this because I know it sounds kind of weird, but I i go there so I get a piece of my dad. And, um, you know, I've pretty much left it the way it is. And um, so if I'm missing him or something, I, I go down there and, you know, sit and walk to the beach and cook good food and drink good wine and write some more 
and I've, I've created some music down there too. I'll, I have a portable studio that I take down there sometimes. Excellent. And, and don't worry folks, the music, we will be touching on that in a different episode, but you <laughs> mentioned uh, your dad and I I'm right there with you, Nancy, because my mom, she moved on to the next part of her journey some seven years ago. And, um, our hometown of Hanover, Mass, the whole town reminds me of her. I go down there, I, I see the sights, and I think of her in so many different ways. So right. I'm right there with you, you know. There's these pieces of our family that stay with us, whether it's a, a building right. or it could be a piece of furniture, it could be a town, it yeah. could be anywhere, really. And I'm really glad that he was able to help inspire your writing journey because what one heck of a journey really he really. was a good writer oh really yeah. he really? didn't write fiction no he wrote uh he wrote uh dental textbooks uh, <laughs> he 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 uh he was a pretty talented fellow yeah hey and i think the thing about mom lived for 41 years and and that's that's just so so damn difficult and emotional you feel like you're putting a third parent, you know, um, and it's, it's, so this is basically the last piece of him that still exists. And mm. I, I know that one day I'm going to have to disassemble that, but, um, yeah. and, and just as a side note, I wrote a, uh, I, I wrote a short story that's posted on my website called deconstructing dad. And it's, it's all about what we children have to do when our parents leave this earth. Yep. Yeah, I say, Nancy, right there with you, because when my mom passed, yeah. she was living in a, in a house. We had to, of course, clear everything out. We sold the house, yeah. and it was like losing her all over again. It was so hard to do, but yeah. the people yeah. who bought the house made it look amazing. They did all kinds of re renovations, and they actually reached out to us, no joke. They reached out to us because they found some family pictures kind of behind oh. a wall or something like that. So I get an email from some oh. dude. He's like, hey, are you, are you Max Bohm? I'm like, uh yes i live in your house now okay <laughs> and i found these pictures oh okay so this is not a scam thank you cool yeah it really is cool uh we could of course talk about our wonderful parents all the live long day but i want to swing back to the book um oh. as you mentioned earlier this is uh your second book your first one being seven sides of self you published this one in 2019 is there any tie-in with Far Away and Forever? Well, that's an interesting question, and the answer is a little bit. The first book, uh, one of my one of the critiques I got on that, and and it was well deserved, is that three of the stories were science fiction, three of them were what I call generic fiction, and one of them was fantasy. So you know that kind of frustrates people because I think they want either a whole book of science fiction or a whole book of fantasy or a whole book of day-to-day -day fiction. But the three in there that are uh, science fiction, uh, which is the second, the fourth, and the sixth stories, all do a little bit relate to stuff that goes on in Far Away and Forever. And so the second story is called The Ledge, and it mentions... Um, it mentions something called mother souls, which is just my way of talking about women who are my version of the Bene Gesserit. If you are familiar with the Bene Gesserit from Dune, uh, no, no Dune. Oh, 
Well, they're, I saw the they're... new movie. I saw the new movie. Does that qualify? Oh, good for you. You need to read the book. <laughs> I am such a bad science fiction fan, folks. I got to oh, turn my card Lord. in. Turn my card in. Mm. Nancy, here's my card. Well, I see. Well, Bene Gesserit are essentially uh, nuns who uh, have evolved a little bit. So Mother Souls are just my version of uh, a sisterhood that are a little more than just religious. They're a little bit into the, the whole science thing. And uh, so they're mentioned in the second story and the, and the, and they're mentioned in the fourth story. Um, and the idea there is that uh, the mother souls are also talked about in um, the last story in Far Away and Forever, uh, the last Sunday of summer. That's pretty much almost like an origin story for the other stories. Um, and then then there's the uh, issue of Aurelia, planet Aurelia, which in the in the um, in the, the um, first set of stories is a planet that uh, where micro man, there's a story in there called the microwave man. And that's where he's from. Um, and in the far away and forever, the signal that uh, they get in once upon a helix is actually coming from planet Aurelia. So once upon a helix is essentially a prequel and um and that's also where uh of the green and of the gold takes place is on planet aurelia so you got three stories and i i once sat down tried to figure out which one's the prequel to which one and it's i don't know i could explain it i will tell you in the back of far away and forever there's a there's a short little blurb called a bit of background and it explains how all the stories are related very so helpful that's very yes. helpful very cool um all right. Now, as we mentioned at the outset, the two topics of science fiction and faith, they go together a little better than you all might think. In these stories, how do you weave these two things together? Well, to me, fantasy is Tolkien and uh, C.S. Lewis and some of Ursula K. Le Guin and Terry Brooks and Patricia McKillop and all them guys. And, you know, we're talking about fairies and elves and trolls and gnomes and hobbitses and wizards and dwarves. So that's that to me is fantasy. And none of that really is in the second collection. I call it all sci-fi. Now, I will tell you that you probably caught that I have a third collection of stories coming out in January called the Riverkeeper, and that's seven short stories that isn't that are in fact all fantasy. And uh, you know, there are wizards and stuff like that. But um yeah, so I just I to me this is all sci-fi, I hope. Yeah. Oh, very cool. All right. Um how about the faith aspect? Where do we see that in the story? I mean I know you mentioned of course the last story of this book is very obvious faith story but right. do you put it in more subtle tones than some of the other stories well that's a good question uh i will tell you that the second story the goldfire project really does get into a little bit of this issue of faith um and 
as it shouldn't be any great surprise, you know, they tell they say writers should always write what they know. So I'm writing what I know, which is a lot of these characters are essentially um, they're essentially me. And um, so the one character in there, this guy named Edwards, who's dying of uh, stage four um, pancreatic cancer. His his faith is really put to the test in terms of what what is uh, what what's beyond death is is there an afterlife et cetera et cetera and so he's given he's given a choice um, there's a, a new new technology that would allow him to transfer his consciousness into a uh, essentially a, a very sophisticated software package and it would allow him to continue his consciousness his thinking and uh, his ability to create and communicate with an outside world and to to live for potentially a very very long time in in this uh artificial environment and He's his uh, psychiatrist who he's seeing during this whole story says, you know, I'm really not getting it. You told me that you had a faith in, in God and an afterlife. And here, right at the last minute where it's it's you got it's coming to the test now. This is it. And you're jettisoning that for this opportunity to go transfer your consciousness into this virtual environment i don't get it you know wouldn't you want that opportunity to go and and, and exercise your faith and um so yeah there's quite a quite a discussion between he and his uh his psychiatrist about that very issue of faith um yeah I think that's that's probably the one story where the the, the whole faith thing really gets really gets uh, pretty deep. Um, it it comes a little bit in the in the last story too, but mm -hmm. it's pretty much that that second story. Oh, okay, all right. Now I imagine this collection of stories required a fair amount of research. Especially with any kind of technologies involved. I mean, like where these things are set, folks. Uh, some of the stories are set in the near future, so you know we have we have like near atmosphere shuttles that take the place of planes. We no longer fly, you know, the seven forty sevens, where we're basically flying space shuttles. That's pretty awesome, I gotta say. How deep into the research well did you have to dive for this collection? I knew you were going to ask this question because I listened to the <laughs> the other one. <laughs> But um, and I'm almost loath to uh, utter this, but I don't think I did a lot of research. I, I think I'm drawing largely from just my experience with, I don't know, the news, my reading of science fiction, my reading of biochemistry textbooks, my reading of the Bible. Um, I. I, so if if I did do research, it's it's I don't know. It's not something that I sat down and and did a concentrated you know effort over a period of a couple of months to do it. No, it's it's me drawing on my life experience over the course of many many years. Um, yeah, sure, there was a little bit, but and but not much. 
Wow, that's not the answer I expected, but I like no, I it. Knew. Yeah, and that's why I said I was loath to admit that. Yeah, hey, you know, some some people do. I, I've talked to plenty of writers who do absolutely no research. They're like, nope, I just kind of winged it. I made it up as I went along, and it, it happened to work out. Oh, um, in the in the first story, once upon a helix, you know, my all my friends that I used to work with at the biotech firm, they they called me up and said, I can't believe that you put the term restriction endonuclease into a short story. Well, that's what the company that I worked for for many years, that's what primarily was our main product was a series of restriction endonucleases, which is what got the whole biotech revolution going back in the late 70s. So <laughs> I had to put that in there. <laughs> I love that they caught that. Like, I can't believe Easter you anger. did that. Yeah. Oh, that is... Just like in my first collection of stories, I put the word monadnock in there because I've got a couple of friends that know that that's my favorite word, monadnock. <laughs> and now it's and now it's stuck in my head. Thank you for that. That's I appreciate right. that. Um, yeah. Do the stories go in a certain order? Like, is the placement intentional, or is it just kind of where they fell? There isn't really any specific order uh, in order to read these. Uh, stories. You're not going to get terribly confused or, or or bollocked up if you read one out of sequence. But the idea was that the first story takes place a hundred years in the future, and the last story takes place I don't know five or six thousand years in the future. And the first story takes place on Earth, and the last story takes place on a planet twelve light years away. So the idea is that you're moving further and further into the future and further farther and farther into uh, space. And hence the title, uh, Far Away and Forever. Mm. All right. Yep. Okay. And uh, there, again, there's a... There's a chronology in the back in the in the little in the blurb that's a bit of background. It actually gives you a chronology of all the stories on in both books and how they all fit together. Mm. I also like that you use the term bollocked up. I don't hear it. I like it. I'll use it. For, I'll, I'll use it more. <laughs> there we go. See, see, new words. This is why it's cool to talk with writers. New words. You can do all kinds of cool stuff. Um, I wish I could claim that. But it comes from a former boss who used to look at work and say, "This is all bollock stuff." <laughs> hey, it's a cool, it's a cool phrase. I I really like it. Um, now I'm not going to ask which is your favorite because that's like picking your favorite kid or your favorite friend. You know, you can't do it. But does do does it, do any of the stories have a real close, significant connection for you? Absolutely. And you can ask because I always tell everybody my favorite story is The Wishbringer. Ah, I could because, I could have I could have guessed that one. I could have guessed that one. Because when you get and you start realizing what where this is going with the uh reporter whose name is Jonathan Argent, um he when he decides that he's gonna test this whole wish thing out with himself, he makes a wish that again he wishes he shouldn't have made. And um, that whole part, that last third of the story is, it's me. It's me. Yep. Wow. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. That's going to be, a, that's going to make it a very different read than when I do get to that story. I like that. All right. <laughs> you know, I want to backtrack a little bit. We talked earlier in the episode about the editing process, of course, and your editor was strong, severe, yes. and excellent at their job. Yes. Absolutely. Do the original stories have anything anything in common with the final versions? 
Oh yeah, they're yeah. probably ninety percent identical. Oh wow. Okay. Yeah. Um, and I think part of the reason for that is uh, I'm I'm kind of uh, I don't know I, I for lack of a better term I'm kind of stingy with time and the one thing I do not want to do is waste people's time and so I go through my stories with a fine tooth comb before I ever send it out to my editor for the first time and. Um, so, you know, it goes through uh, two, two rounds with Grammarly, if you know Grammarly, uh, which I don't like because it's based on artificial intelligence and it's telling me to make all kinds of changes which are so out of context and makes absolutely no sense. But when you think about the fact that, you know, there's, I forget how many suggestions there were during the course of all five stories, but it was in the thousands. I mean, I think it was maybe like 4,000 suggestions and you have to go through each and every one and say whether you accept it or not accept it. But I think that kind of, uh, that kind of work really helps. And um, my editor has been very good about teaching me things about, you know, dealing, being cognizant of active versus passive uh, uh, voice. Um, and I've gone to any number of uh, writers classes where they're talking about things like, you know, minimal uses of adverbs and all that kind of stuff, because I don't want my editor to sit there with a red pen and and have to go through and make spelling checks and grammar checks and all that. That that's not what I'm hiring her for. Um, you know, I want her to. I, I'm not looking for a copy editor. In other words, I'm looking for somebody that is is a little more high level, and and that's what she does. Yeah, sure, she'll catch the occasional typo or something, but yeah, yeah. Did any story get a more massive renovation than the others? The answer to the question is yes. The one story that's not in there. Well, oh, what's <laughs> the story that didn't make it? Oh my God. What's the story? Yeah, uh, well, it's, I'm trying to be nice to my publisher because God bless them and they're wonderful and everything. But no, there was a story that they, they didn't like. And, and so, because uh, originally I had it in mind to do five five novelettes. Um, in case you didn't notice, there's a thing with alliteration that I have. Yeah, so all the stories in the first collection, the letter S is very prominent. The letter F is very prominent in all the story titles for the second collection. And so fortunately, I had uh, the Goldfire Project uh, waiting in the wings. So I pulled the story that they didn't like uh, and uh, inserted that, and away we went, and everything was fine. Now, I've, I've, so to answer your question, that fifth story that didn't make it, I've since gone in and uh, rewritten the, the last third of it uh, to change how it goes. And I'm going to park that story in a... Uh, um, a fourth collection of stories that is in the process of development now, and it'll be in there. Mm, I definitely want to check out that story because it's the ones that I read something once I thought was very significant. It's that it's not what the writer leaves in the book. It's what they take out that you really want to keep your eyes right. on. So I, I always like to see what gets taken out. If a character is lost, if a plot line's tossed, you know, because this yeah. all, of course, changes what the final version becomes. 
Sure. No, there's not a lot of that. But the, the irony is, and again, I'm a big one for Easter eggs, is that if you read the Goldfire Project, uh, there's a line in there that talks about the natural order of things. Mm. And that's the title of the story that got pulled. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I love it. Let's talk about your publisher because you're releasing this book through She Writes Press. And I've had Correct. a number of writers on the show that work with them. So obviously a great company. And I believe you worked with them yes. for your last book too. How'd you find this group and how'd you know that they're the ones to work with? Good story. Uh, yeah. So um, I was a wannabe writer for ages and ages and ages. And I walked down the my, my street that I live on um, about six, seven years ago to visit one of my neighbors. And there was a book sitting on her kitchen counter with her name on it. And I'm going, what? You're a published author? And she said, yeah. I said, well, how did that happen? And she said, well, yeah, I'm a member of the Maryland Writers Association. And so I immediately went home and joined the Maryland Writers Association, and they have meetings every single month, and they always bring in stellar uh, speakers. And so after about a year of doing that, uh, they had a panel of six women, and the idea was that each woman talked about how they got their first book published. And one of them started talking about She Writes Press, and uh, and more generically, uh, talking about hybrid publishers. And I don't know if you know the term hybrid publisher, but of course it's halfway between the classic big presses and the vanity presses, where it's kind of like the big presses, except that the author puts the bill financially for everything. And so um, I thought, well, that's I like that model. Um, so I submitted a story to one uh, hybrid publisher, and I submitted uh, another story to uh, She Writes Press, and She Writes Press took it. Excellent. And I was blown away. I mean, it's one of those moments in life where, like, you can't believe that the the good Lord has blessed you, and um, and that's the last story in the first collection called Old Mims. And um, but you know. As as successful as they are, um, they're also they don't have a very large uh, number of publications. They do two two cohorts, one in the spring and one in the fall, and each one is probably about thirty five to forty titles, and that's it. Wow. And when you think about how many people are submitting stuff to them in in the four years between the first and the second book they had to hire an outside subcontractor to come in and help them you know weed out uh you know titles and so i actually had a book between the first and the second that i submitted and it got turned down uh it passed the first round but she writes press said no and the third collection of short stories the one that's the the fantasies um they also turned that one down. So oh, I went wow. and found I went and found a another hybrid publisher who's going to publish it. And you know I don't take that the wrong way. Um, I think that part of the thing with She Writes Press is that you know it's it's modeled to be uh, a press for women authors, which is great. I love it. But I think the other thing is that I've I've come to realize is that not only are they um, titles written by women, I think they 
pretty much prefer to publish stories about women. Mm. And of course, I'm writing sci-fi and fantasy, and that doesn't really mesh well. Yeah. So, I mean, I get that. And I'm so grateful to, to them for giving me my start. And I will certainly continue to try and uh, get them to publish additional work. Um, but I know that some of the things I have, they're not going to want. I have a children's story that I know they're not going to want. And the other thing they don't do that this other publisher that I'm using for the third book is they don't they don't have an illustrator on staff. And um they don't do a lot of marketing for you, whereas this other publisher is, they offer quite a bit. Now, they have a different model. They're they're publishing tons and tons of books, and they do it in much more rapid fire. I mean, it took me two years to get Far Away and Forever published. Um, these guys, they're committed to do it in 13 months. So that's great. Um, but I mean, you know, it's a roller coaster. It really is. Um, yeah, yep. It certainly is. Certainly is. All right. Well, Nancy, we are coming down to the end of this conversation. I'm sorry to say, I, but, but you know what? Of course, we're going to leave folks with a big question. What's next? We've already talked about it before, but let's dive a little bit more into the Riverkeeper and other tales set for a release next year. It is uh, seven fantasy tales. Uh, six of those take place in the imaginary kingdom of the, of Imlay. And the thing that's so cool about this uh, is that the the fourth story in there is called Aurora's Ring. And the way this goes is I was down at the beach in my father's place uh, at five o'clock on a beautiful idyllic day with my guitar and my favorite beverage and the muses showed up and I played a song that I'd never played before and it's called Aurora's Ring. So I took it, brought it back to my musical collaborator. He added some vocals, a lead guitar. We got a song and it's pretty cool. And a couple months later, he called me up and said, you know, we need to do a concept album. We need to take this story, stretch it out, and make it a make it an album. So that's that's that guy right there. Ah, yes, and, yes. Uh, called uh, Dragon's Door: A Tale of Ring and Sword by Sparrow's Tale. That's the name of our group that we mm. use. And um, so it's fourteen songs, and it essentially is uh, the soundtrack for the short story which is so cool i mean how often are you going to have a, a book and a cd that you know support one another and the thing that's really cool about that cd is it was mastered at abbey road studio yes it's true i know oh wow oh my god okay 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 like so i said it. folks the music interview we're gonna do that one down the road but Later. we will absolutely be talking about that and a whole lot more <laughs> and with that my friends we're wrapping this one up uh nancy joy Thank wilkie you. so great talking to you of course folks july 18th through she writes press far away and forever i'm already reading it and you're gonna want to read it too it's a great collection really something for everyone yeah. I, I would say and it's currently, it is posted on Amazon, so you can pre-order it now. Yes, go pre-order it, folks. Leave some comments, of course, <laughs> as I always say. Leave comments, leave reviews, follow the socials. All the interaction is, is essential. You go to mindsites.com. 
www.ghostbusters.net. Link will be in the description for this episode. You'll find everything you need right there. Nancy, very much looking forward to the next conversation. Thank you so much. Hi, this is singer Kate Eppers, and you're listening to Citywide Blackout. And that brings this episode to a close. Thanks for listening. And don't forget to follow the show on Facebook under Citywide Blackout and Twitter and Instagram under Citywide Max. You can find this show on your favorite podcast platforms and new episodes are added every week, as well as every Saturday at 10 p.m. on Boston Free Radio. You can get at me at citywidemax at yahoo.com. Whether you want to suggest a guest, submit music for the bi-weekly Blackout Collection playlist, or just say hello. That's all for now, and I'll see you next time.